Heavenly Father, we had asked that you would help to make us aware, or help us to be aware of what is taking place in these end times. But first, Lord, as we just get into your word, show us, reveal to us those things which we might not know or be familiar with that will enable us to intelligently talk to those who are around us about what the Bible has to say, your word, about what is coming. We ask this for the sake of saving those who might not know, Lord. Give us the opportunities, we pray, especially as we commit uh, as much as we can to memory. Uh, We know that you uh, desire this in us, that we have this information, and pray that you would use us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Of course, that's King James. And so that is our prayer that the Lord would reveal to us what is taking place inside of Scripture. And the subject tonight is eschatology. It comes from the word eschatos, which means last or last things. God doesn't do anything without revealing it to us through his prophets. That's what the Old Testament says. And so he has set everything out from beginning to the end. And he wants us to be aware, especially, like I just said, for the purposes of letting other people know. Now, the purpose of covering eschatology is so that we can make a distinction between what the world believes is going to happen and what we believe is going to happen. For instance, if any of you guys have um, watched Star Trek, now Gene Roddenberry... What? You guys have watched Star Trek. Oh, good. That, that's good. What's the name of the captain? Kirk. Which one? <laughs> yeah, the original. <clears throat> Anyhow, the view that Gene Roddenberry had was, and by the way, that's why uh, Star Trek took the direction it took, because he thought we are just going to evolve, we're going to co- become better. We're going to put away our defenses. We're going to put away our aggressions. And we are going to escalate. And that's when we go out and we explore the universe. And you have the prime directive where you don't interfere with anything that is out there. And all these man-made rules. And that's the way that we are thinking currently. Even in space exploration, they want us to be completely sterile. We don't want to infect a planet, you know, anything like that. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. But... That's the view of the world, that we're just going to escalate, we're going to evolve, we're going to get beyond our pettiness, and things are going to get better. This happened to be the view last century, that things would just gradually get better. The gospel would go out, things would calm down, and then the Lord would come back. And of course, that is not correct. That is not what is taking place. And (laughs) I want to make sure that I explain to you as well Uh, This is a Calvary distinctive. Uh, There are several things that we believe here as a Calvary chapel. For instance, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but we don't believe in charismania. There's charismata, which is the gifts, but charismania is swinging from the chandeliers and running up and down the aisles and everybody speaking in tongues at one time and everybody interpreting. And it's just, it's nuts, stuff like that. And so that's a distinctive for Calvary chapel. Also that the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and directs us and teaches us today, and he is instrumental in our worship. Another distinctive is our eschatology. Eschatology such as pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of eschatology, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. So this is a distinction for us. And also, when it comes to eschatology, 
I wouldn't believe it when I read it in the Bible unless, excuse me, I didn't believe it until I found out about prophecy in the Bible, that it actually has been coming true. And therefore, I should probably stick with the program because the stuff that is in here, it's almost surreal. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but, you know, demons coming out. There was a, um, a movie that was on television recently, and it was called The Remnant. Wasn't that it? The Remnant? And it was Hollywood's version of the rapture. And there was this wedding, and all of a sudden people just fell down to the ground, and their eyes, the, the irises of their eyes, turned almost a gray color. And they were all dead. They were all gone. And then there was a bunch of people left behind. And, of course, that's not how the rapture is going to take place, but that was their interpretation. And then it, as somebody got saved, because they knew even the pastor was there and he wasn't saved, and then he got saved, and then a demon came and took him, you know, killed him, that type of thing. And it, it just, it, they're trying to explain through Hollywood's eyes how they think it should go, or like the old movies of The Omen, they've been on television recently. They're completely wrong. I mean, they couldn't be more wrong, but they do have a scripture at the end of the first one. And so surrealism is a real possibility that people will experience if they don't know Christ, if they don't know the veracity or the truthfulness of the scripture. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go through terminology or terms and or vocabulary. And tonight you guys can just listen to what these are. Most of you are going to be familiar with these and maybe you won't be very familiar and hopefully I can fill in some gaps. And as we go along the way, I want you to raise your hand if you have questions on any one of these. Okay, the first one is the rapture. Now you are going to need your Bibles. So I need you to pull out your Bible and open up to Isaiah chapter 26. And I want to do this exercise where you're just opening up the scripture and you're seeing it for yourself to make sure that I'm not making it up. (coughs) Excuse me. Now when it comes to interpretation... It's hard to just arbitrarily assign a meaning to an Old Testament passage, but when it comports or when it fits in the New Testament, I think we have a little more freedom. And this one is an Old Testament uh, verse, just like you know that the scriptures say in the book of Proverbs, I believe it's chapter 30, that God has a son. And if you asked a Jew about that, it actually says in Tell me his name and the name of his son if you know it. And if you took that to a Jew, you'd say, look, God has a son. But they reject that. They just say God is one. And there is no son. There is no Holy Spirit, that type of thing. Well, this is one. This particular verse begins in 19. Now, I want you to tell me at the end of reading this if you think this applies to the rapture. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. Now, if you didn't know better, you'd say, well, that sounds New Testament because at the time of God's wrath, which is the tribulation, and that's what it's speaking about here, when the people are raised from the dead, God's wrath comes. 
Well, in the New Testament, that's the rapture. And where do you go in the rapture? If you are familiar with a Jewish wedding, they would come and they would grab the bride and they would throw her into the chamber and they'd have this wedding party that would last for a week. And depending on who you read on this, the bride would stay in the bridal chamber for a week. The guy could come and go in and out of the tent, the bridal chamber, as often as he wanted to, but the woman, the bride, would remain there. And for seven days, she would do that. We go for seven years. Where do we go? We go to be with the Lord. And so he says, hide yourselves in my, shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until my wrath has passed by. And so I believe that this definitely talks about the rapture. Then the ones you're probably familiar with is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you turn over there, verse 50. And by the way, I don't think I'm going to make it through all the definitions tonight. But this kind of goes along with the timeline. We're waiting for the rapture. That's the last thing prophetically that needs to take place. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 15. Now some people will make an argument that don't believe in the rapture. They'll say, well, there's only two verses that apply uh, to it. How many verses do you need to establish a doctrine? One. You just need one. If the Lord talks about it, if the apostles teach it, if you find it in the New Testament and even references to the Old Testament, it's a doctrine. I mean, that's what we want to hold to. Now, First Thessalonians 4.15 says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And these individuals in the church of Thessalonica, they thought maybe the rapture had already taken place or the resurrection had taken place. And Paul was clearing that up, saying, no, it hadn't, and you're supposed to encourage each other with these words. It's still future. Then John chapter 14, please turn over there. This is where God comes and he gets us. Now, some people might say, if they don't believe in the rapture, well, he's just talking about his disciples here. Well, he's not. He's talking about all of us, not just the 12. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And of course, Jesus is the way, right? So we have these views of the rapture as well. There's the pre-tribulational rapture, there's the mid-tribulational rapture, and there's the post-tribulational rapture. Now, what happens here, what the beliefs are in any given church is our church says, you will be raptured at the beginning 
before the Antichrist comes to power of the tribulation. And you will be taken away for seven years, and after seven years, you'll come back. So that's the pre-trib view or the pre-tribulational view. Then there's the mid-tribulational view, because some people say you won't get raptured until the great tribulation starts. And I'm going to, I'll end up covering some of these things two or three times. But the tribulation is made up of seven years, three and a half years. The first part is called the tribulation. The second half is called the great tribulation. And that's the time that people say, well, that's when God's wrath comes. And we are spared God's wrath, so that's the time we're going to be raptured. And there's going to be prosperity and peace, mostly, during the first three and a half years because the Antichrist comes on the scene. He's a great world leader. He's also a conqueror. But the last three and a half years are going to be hell on earth, literally. And so some people think it's the middle of the tribulation period that we get raptured. Then there's the post-tribulational view. This is called the U-turn theory. Uh, It's where at the end of the tribulation, you get raptured, meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, get your new body, and come immediately back down. Of course, that flies in the face of John chapter 14. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And so those last two... I do not believe. I do not believe that we're going to have to be faced with taking the mark of the beast, uh, which is in the book of Revelation. talks about that. But anyhow, it's the pre-tribulational view that I'm presenting to you that we hold to. Going on with this, turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Now, I have been taught traditionally that the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place when we go up to be with the Lord in the rapture. And I'm not sure about the timing of this because in verse 9 it says, The angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now this is after the tribulation period. And so, just to let you know, there is this marriage supper, just like the Jewish wedding. You had this supper. I don't know if it's going to take place while we're up there or it's going to take place after the great white throne judgment. I'm not quite sure. But I I do know it is going to take place and we're going to have a banquet up there. Then going on, whether the marriage supper is during the tribulation period and we are in heaven or it's afterwards there is this idea the seven years of tribulation that will come upon the earth and like i said it's divided into two parts there's the tribulation and the great tribulation and in the middle of that what we know will take place according to the prophet daniel and we'll look at this again is in daniel chapter 9 verse 27 it's called the abomination of desolation right now during that period of time there is some controversy what will take place and when it will take place in the book of Revelation. It talks about the seven seals, talks about the seven trumpets, and then it talks about the seven vile or bowl judgments. These are judgments which are going to come upon the earth, and this is where God's wrath is going to be poured out, and as well as Satan's wrath is going to be poured out. Uh, In chapter 14, it talks about blood is going to be spilled. God sends some harvesters from heaven and they come down with sickles. Now I think that this is figurative language, but they are going to kill people. Uh, There are going to be millions that die. 
And it says in this particular valley, there is going to be blood that flows for 180 miles. And it's going to be to the horse's bridle. Now, Kim, can you tell me how high a horse's bridle is? I know I asked you in Bible study. So it's taller than you, right? Depending on if it's a quarter horse, how high is it? Quarter horse, they're the big horses, aren't they? The draft horses. They're like almost two people high, aren't they? They're like huge, some of those bigger horses? Not quite. A person and a half. Okay. So that's how thick the blood is going to be flowing. Now, sometimes that's confused with the uh, Battle of Armageddon, but this is in chapter 14, and it seems to be that the Lord is coming down and he's just judging people, and they are dying left and right, and there's a tremendous amount of blood that flows. So during this tribulation period, there is these seven seals. I'm going to name what these seals are. Actually, I'm going to name six of them. <clears throat> the, the last seal opens up the next set of judgments is what it does. So six of these seals. The first one is the white horse. The second one is the red horse. The third one is the black horse. The fourth seal is the pale horse. The fifth seal, it, it deals with the martyrs. And the sixth seal is worldwide chaos. And I'm going to go back and explain these. The first seal you have this rider on a white horse and he's bent on conquest. Some people confuse this rider on the white horse with Jesus Christ and it is not Jesus Christ. It is the Antichrist who comes forward and he tries to take over the world. And then there is the red horse and the red horse represents war. And war is going to cover the earth. We think we have war now. This is really going to be an egregious state of being when this red horse is released then there's the black horse. The black horse, uh, it portends to the economic collapse of the world. I just heard something today <clears throat> that uh, in our country we're $19 trillion in debt. <laughs> yeah, remember to vote. <clears throat> Anyhow, it's $19 trillion. And the last time they tried to raise the interest rate, it affected the stock market. And they just... I just read yesterday that they're going to put off raising the interest rates because it's going to affect the econ economy. Well, when you owe $19 trillion, if the feds raise the interest rate, they raise the interest rate they have to pay on the $19 trillion. And it, so it's like you're going to shoot off your own foot if you raise that interest rate. And so we we are in a bad way. And you might... You have to consider who is the most qualified to get rid of the debt who is out there. And, of course, that's going to be up to you guys. But an economic collapse is going to take place where it's going to be a day's wages for a loaf of wonder bread. Now, in the Old Testament, when this was written, a loaf of bread was about this big and it was about that high. And that's all you get for a day's wages. And so that's what's coming and that this is during the tribulation period. And so knowing this, will there be a worldwide economic collapse before this? I'm not so sure that there's going to be. It's going to be tough. There's no question about it. But will everything collapse? Well, I think that's reserved for this rider on this black horse, this rider on the black horse, that this economic collapse is going to take place 
And during that time, if you have a lot of gold or silver, it's not going to make a hill of beans difference because people are going to want food and they're going to want shelter. That's what they're going to want and it's going to turn into bartering. Your gold is not going to be worth anything. If you have paper money, it's going to be worthless at that point because people just want to survive, right? Then there's the pale horse, which represents famine, pestilence, pandemics. There's going to be death everywhere like this Zika virus that is out there. There will be entirely new viruses that will be out there. Yes, Elizabeth? So these um, gold judgments are starting... These are seals. Depends on who you talk to. Some people say it's the seven years total that these encompass. Some people say, no, it's only the last three and a half. Then other people say, but each one of these has to come in succession, whether it's the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls or the vials, or they run concurrently with each other. Yeah, so we don't know. We're not going to have to worry about it. Imagine a leader who comes along and says, don't panic. We're going to solve this problem. We have a new monetary system. We're getting rid of all credit cards. You just put this on the back of your hand or on your forehead. It's okay. We're only two years into the tribulation, right? And he goes, we're going to solve this, and everybody's going to have money in their bank account. Don't you worry about it at all. And just we have these centers all set up. You guys just come to these things, get the mark, and you can buy or sell. So that's how I kind of see it happening, is he is the great politician, and he's the one that just, oh, prosperity for everybody. It's like right now, you know, we're dealing with socialism and free market that we're going to be under. And if it's socialism, you're not going to be so happy right? But if it's free market, you're going to be a little more happy. And if some guy comes along and says, I have all the answers, well, okay, I'm voting for you, right? So then we have uh, the fifth seal. Now, this is those who are martyred for their faith during the tribulation period. And make no mistake, the Antichrist will succeed in killing any Christians at that time. Now, This is kind of a double-edged sword because it does talk about those people who are beheaded for their faith in the tribulation because they weren't Christians before the rapture. So in the tribulation, they get saved. How difficult is it to get saved in the tribulation? Very, very difficult because there is a great delusion which is set out there. We don't know what that delusion is, but people will say something to the effect of, are you kidding me? You think you can hold to this Bible when this is taking place and it's going to be the miraculous. Something miraculous is going to be taking place and I believe it's not just going to be the Antichrist. There's going to be other things happening and, and, and I don't know what it is going to be exactly, but people are going to be deceived. And so those that get saved, God definitely wants them saved, but it's going to be few, I think, compared to how many get saved in these days before the tribulation. And then the sixth seal, there is in the earth worldwide chaos because there are great earthquakes, the sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light or turns red. And it says stars fell to the earth. Now, some people say that's angels or demons falling to the earth because they were referred to as stars, like the morning star is Lucifer, 
right? Fell to earth. It could be meteors, just like that guy a week ago. Read about him? Yeah, he got killed by a meteor. Your time is up. You know, it's just that thing comes out of nowhere. What's the chance of you getting hit by a meteor? Well, this time was up. So anyhow, that is going to take place. Then you get into the trumpets. Six trumpets I'm going to name here. The first trumpet, there's going to be hail, fire, and blood. Hail is going to come out of the sky. Fire is going to come out of the sky. Blood, water, you know, turning into, uh, water's turning into blood. Then there's, second one is the mountain burning with fire is going to be cast down to the earth. Then there's one uh, on the third trumpet, a star called Wormwood or a meteor called Wormwood, and it's going to destroy the waters. Fourth trumpet, again, the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. The fifth trumpet, there's a locust plague. And the sixth trumpet, armies are loosed. Now, do you see any similarities between these plagues and the plagues in Exodus? Why do you think God set up Exodus? So that we would know what's going to take place in the future. Then you have the seven bold judgments or vile judgments. The first one, malignant sores are going to break out on people's bodies. Vile or bold two, the sea will be turned to blood. Vile three, rivers turned to blood. Fourth, scorching heat. Fifth, darkness. And sixth, the river Euphrates dries up. And so this is all dealing, this is what God is doing, and it's dealing with God's wrath. Now I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 3, and you might ask, well, why, why is God's wrath even coming? Why are we going to experience, or not us, but the people on earth going to experience God's wrath? Well, Scripture tells us exactly why God's wrath is coming. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. It says there, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. How much of these is in our society today? It is, it is everywhere, uh, except Iran. They don't have sexual immorality in Iran, right? Ahmadinejad, he talked about that. And, you know, these countries who um, say that they're so pure, like, for instance, Saudi Arabia, you're not supposed to drink alcohol according to uh, Sharia law. But you can drink it in your house all you want, right? And so there's this standard of, way you're supposed to live on the outside but people on the inside their hearts are wicked and they're just going to do what they want to do and sexual immorality is ubiquitous it's all over the earth and so this is why the wrath of God is coming first Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 this one tells us that we are going to be saved from God's wrath first Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And all the scholars will agree that the tribulation is a time of God's wrath. Also, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse, I'm going to pick it up in verse 14. 
It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, tells us we're not appointed to suffer wrath. It says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of suffering the wrath of God, we have passed from judgment because of God's mercy into life. We have been justified. In other words, he declares us right. Okay? So you have this idea of wrath, which is going to be taking place in the tribulation, depending on who you are, you would say all seven years or the last three and a half years. But that demarcation point is the abomination which makes desolate. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, and if you read First and Second Maccabees, it'll give you a detailed explanation of what took place. But he came into the land and he desecrated the temple. And uh, his life was, he had a terrible life. Terrible guy, horrible man. But anyhow, he set up his, um, he set up an ensign inside the temple to be worshipped. And he slaughtered a pig. And that was, as some people think, that is the abomination which makes desolate. The only problem with that, and that... I think most of you guys know that some people think the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled, according to some. But it has not, and they point to Antiochus Epiphanes desecrating the temple, saying, see, it already took place. The only problem with that, First and Second Maccabees, are intertesimal. They are between the Old Testament and New Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, or 24, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation as a future event. And so the one with Antiochus Epiphanes was simply a foreshadowing of what is to take place in the future. So those people who say the book of Revelation has already happened or they shifted to an allegory, Jesus said, no, this is something that is still future. Now, in order for that to happen, the temple has to be rebuilt. They're ready to rebuild it. They're, They're all set. But uh, the abomination of desolation, I want you to turn over to Daniel chapter 9. There are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I have five scriptures that deal with this. Daniel nine twenty seven is the first one. And this is talking about the Antichrist making a covenant with the Israelites he says he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven which is a seven year period in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him so the Antichrist makes a treaty with the Jews and the Jews control the temple mount but it is the Muslims who are on the temple mount If a Jew goes up there, the Muslims have a conniption fit and they start going nuts. And then there has to be Israelis, uh, part of the uh, IMF, go up there and calm things down. And nobody who is a Christian or a Jew is allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. 
because the Muslims don't want it. And since they control it up there, that's just the way things are. So he's going to make a covenant with the Jews and apparently with the Muslims to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. This also talks about that event. And the Antichrist is here. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And again, that is just him putting up his image, declaring himself to be God and to be worshipped as such. Daniel chapter 12, one chapter over, verse 11, says, From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335th day or days. And that, that is when Christ is going to be coming back at the end of the 1,335th. So if you see the abomination which makes desolate, you know when he's coming back. If you have survived up until that point, if you can survive, not that any of you are going to have to, but anyone who's here, if you're listening to this on the uh, internet, you can survive 1,335 days. That's when Christ is coming back. Okay, that, That's the end of the tribulation period. Going on in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus talks about it here. Says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. In other words, they want them to flee. This is repeated in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. And it goes on through verse 19. But it just talks about the abomination which makes it desolate. Then this guy who is on the scene called the Antichrist. Anti means he's against or he's opposed to Christ. He's an individual who will be possessed by Satan and will appear during the tribulation. He will release his wrath upon all people everywhere and will declare himself to be God. He is also the conqueror, the rider on the white horse. He is the one that takes over the entire world, but he will be chained for a thousand years as we'll get to in a minute when Christ comes back and he's referred to as uh, the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 verse 24 you have ten horns and ten kings who will come from this kingdom after them another king will arise different from the earlier ones he will subdue three kings he will speak against the most high and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws the saints will be handed over to him for time times and half a time but the court will sit and his powers will be taken away and completely destroyed forever now if you didn't know what this meant and you heard it for the first time you'd be going what did you just say times times and half a time is three and a half years and what he is going to do here, he is going to be given power over the saints or those who believe. And it's talking about the Antichrist. We went through all of this in the home fellowship and we went through Daniel and also the book of Revelation. Also, uh, in the, um, the ESV, Daniel chapter 11, verse 21 says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So this guy is going to be a talker. He's going to talk and make everybody feel good by what he says, but he's doing it for a deceitful purpose. And by the way, just as a side note, if anyone used flattery on you, God says, 
don't take it, don't believe it. The person has ulterior motives. Uh, he is evil, the person who uses flattery. Not that you can't give a compliment, but flattery is something to be avoided. Also, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, in this verse, when the rebellion occurs, do you guys know what that is? Do you know what the King James says about the rebellion, what it, the word that it uses? It's apostasy. Apostasizing is when somebody is in the church and leaves the church and says there is no God turns from the faith during this time there is going to be a huge rebellion where people are going to exit churches in droves although they'll end up worshipping the false religious system that is set up in the beast they will reject anything to do with Christ. And so there's going to be an apostatizing, a turning away from the faith. Those who actually get saved, well, they're, I don't believe they are ever really saved, but they're going to leave the faith. And that's what it's talking about here. So when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to be a man of flattery. He is going to be lawless. He is going to proclaim himself to be God. And people are going to leave the church as a result of his, quote-unquote, ministry. And also, he was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. That's how long it is. That's in Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 5. It talks about the Antichrist there. Then uh, his ultimate... Do you guys know what's going to happen to him ultimately? You want to want to... You don't know? Are you sure, Christian? You don't know what's going to happen to the Antichrist? The really bad guy? What's going to happen to him? He goes to hell. <laughs> he goes to hell, that's it. Um, he so get... Yes. Assassinated. He'll be assassinated. Isn't that... Don't you know somebody who was alive, was killed, and then came back to life? Such a copycat, isn't he? I was thinking actually E.T. <laughs> That's, by the way, they use that storyline in a lot of movies where somebody comes from a foreign place, they die, they raise from the dead, and then they go back saying they'll come back. That, that is a classic storyline, and you can catch it in a lot of movies. Like, for instance, uh, and I've mentioned this before, Matrix. He comes from outside, goes to this new world, lives amongst the people, does miraculous things, dies, comes back from the dead, leaves the world, and comes back every once in a while, right? That's the classic savior story. That's the redeemer story. And so Tron, same thing. You can look at that. Now, there is also what is known as the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, 
And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have, have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. <clears throat> and so there, are, there is this spirit of Antichrist which is pervasive, where God is shunned. And if you bring up the mention of God, you are ridiculed. Uh, you are put down. It is something that you are considered small-minded if you believe in God. After all, there is science. And so science has become the new God, the one to be worshipped. So you want to pay attention whenever you see the spirit of Antichrist. For instance, do you think the spirit of Antichrist is in Planned Parenthood? Yes. Absolutely. Especially this judge. I don't know if you saw it, but he prohibited any more videos from being released about Planned Parenthood and the selling of body parts of the babies and that type of thing. He he doesn't want anything going on like that. And that's totally the spirit of Antichrist that's acting out there. Then there is, after the tribulation, seven years, it culminates in a battle. Now, some people say this battle is not at the end of the seven years. It's at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we'll get to in a minute. I believe it's at the end of the seven years. And this is where the battle is just raging. And then when Christ starts to come back, they want to fight Christ, and he just wipes them out. Just, they're done. This is where Christ comes back on a horse, and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are with him because we went with him seven years ago to meet the Lord in the air. We go to his chambers for a little while until his wrath has passed by. Then he goes, okay, come on, get up, let's go. And we come back to earth with our new glorified bodies. Now, I don't know that we're going to be radiating down here, but we will certainly be radiating with our bodies up in heaven because we'll be in the presence of God. We will not have the desires of the flesh. And we are going to come back. We are going to be considered the armies of God, but we are a kingdom of priests as well. And so we will do his bidding here And we will be the ones ministering to those who survive the tribulation period. But this battle of Armageddon, this will take place. If if you went to Israel today, (coughs) on the shore of the Mediterranean, you can see Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, as you look east, you will see this valley. This valley is called also the Valley of Jezreel. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. Then you have Mount Tabor and Mount... uh, uh, Gilboa, and let's see, um, which one's to the north? You know, I think Mount Tabor is to the south, Mount Gilboa is to the north, and it goes all the way to the Jordan. You can't see the whole way, but that's where the final battle is taking place. And it is north of the Dead Sea, up above the um, Sea of Galilee a little bit. It is this huge, it, it, matter of fact, Mount Carmel if you're familiar with Israel, and you can look at your maps, it's right above Haifa. And when you're on Haifa, Haifa is a, there's a university up on top of Haifa, but then you can look over and you can see Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is where what happened? Do you guys remember? There was a guy, a prophet, wanted to sacrifice something. Who? Who said that? That's absolutely correct. Guys are scholars back there. And what did Elijah do up there? 
he called fire down from heaven, right? And it consumed an animal and the water and the rocks and everything. And how many prophets of Baal did they kill? 400. That's right. 400 prophets of Baal. Remember, if it was like a showdown, a duel. Uh, the prophets were there of Baal, and it was just Elijah. And Elijah says, you think your God is so great? Yeah, let's just make a sacrifice. You call on him and have him consume your sacrifice with fire. And whichever God answers, then we'll know he's God. Wasn't he the one that said, is your God like in the bathroom or something? Yes. And the living Bible, it says, where is your God? Is he on the toilet? You know, so he was just taunting them and they were cutting themselves and they're doing everything to get their God to respond. And so that's what he says. And then it's his turn. And he tells his servant there, just pour water, pour more water. It's just sopping wet. There's a trough around it and God consumes everything with fire. How hot does fire have to be to consume even the rocks that are there? Oh, you could be a mile away and you'd be able to feel the heat coming off of that thing. So anyhow, that's where the Valley of Megiddo, where the um, Battle of Armageddon takes place. That is the final battle when Christ comes back. Now when he actually comes back, does anybody know where his foot is going to land? That's right, it's the Mount of Olives. If you see pictures of the Dome of the Rock, it is taken from, and the Dome of the Rock is a big gold dome. It's on the Temple Mount. If you are seeing that in a picture, you are on the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives over to the Gate Beautiful, which is sealed up, there is going to be, according to the book of Zechariah, there's going to be a valley that forms, that splits from the Mount of Olives all the way east, or excuse me, all the way west to the Gate Beautiful. And the land is going to split open and Christ is going to walk through that, which is prophesied that he will do. And right now it's sealed up. And the next one who's going to walk through that is going to be Christ himself. So that's how he's going to come back. After he comes back, he sets up a reign. He rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And where his throne will be exactly, if I had to guess, I would say it would be in the temple. And it would be in the Holy of Holies. That's where he would be. You know, if he uh, wants to rule there, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, don't quote me on it, but that's just my guess because that's his mercy seat, right? That's where he operates from. And then there's going to be water flowing from the temple area to the Dead Sea. Now, if you've been to the Dead Sea, you've been, anybody else been to the Dead Sea? It is the strangest place over there. <clears throat> Anyhow, it's 1,000, I forget, 300, I'm going to guess, 25 feet below sea level. It's way down there. The water's going to fill it up, and it's going to flow one more time out into the ocean. And so that whole area is going to be, the Dead Sea will be huge once that happens. It will go up all the way to the Jordan River and probably almost touch um, the Sea of Galilee up there, there'll be a little bit of the Jordan River between that. But that's what's going to happen. And uh, there's going to be prosperity. You think we've had prosperity in the United States. I don't think it's even going to come close to what we're going to experience there. There's going to be no starvation. 
There's going to be no war. Uh, we will have to, I believe, evangelize the people who survived the tribulation period. That will be our job uh, because they still have to come to Christ by faith. But we know at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, tell me what's going to happen. That's right. Satan's going to be released for a short time. And millions will follow him. Millions. It, it talks about a multitude in Scripture from all over the world. He is going to deceive the nations one more time. And they're going to come up to Jerusalem. And the, the reason you say come up to Jerusalem is because it's on a hill. Everybody has to come up to Jerusalem. Yes? Kind of like now. Yes, but even in Jesus' time, how many people did believe? You also have to recognize this too. It's going to be a time of prosperity. Everybody's going to have everything that they need. And the flesh is still going to be present. And once that flesh gets the temptation of Satan, I mean, if they're not saved, they're going to fall. And it's going to be millions Millions of people, and they're going to make armaments, and they're going to try to go against Christ, and you know, it's just going to be crazy. And we're, we know what's coming. We won't be like our, our eyes are covered. We'll probably be telling people, look, this is, do you see this over here, over in Bosnia? You know, it's coming this way. Or we'll, in what used to be Russia, it'll probably be called something else then. You know, it's going to be coming this way and, and also probably from the north and from Africa because the continents will probably still be uh, where they are today, I'm, I'm guessing. But uh, all these countries, these nations are going to come up to Jerusalem and they don't stand a chance. God is just going to burn them up like a matchstick. I mean, it's going to be over for them. Now, what happens after that? I believe there's one thing that happens first. Well, yes, that happens. Yes, that's, I just read it, it's in Daniel, where you have the 1,335th day, but I think it also says, blessed is the one who makes it to the 1,265th, or, yes, yeah, there's a period of time, like 35 days in there, like, what is going on in that period? We don't know what's going on in that period, so that's the mystery part. But also, I I need to digress just a little bit. There are some views on the millennium. Uh, For instance, the Catholic Church 
if you go to the Catholic Church, they don't believe in the rapture and they don't believe in the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. They just believe God's going to come back, set up his kingdom, great white throne judgment, onto eternity. That's what's going to happen. Everything else is allegory. Everything else is open to interpretation. Then there are those who are post-millennial. They take the thousand-year reign of Christ and they say, eh, it's spiritual. It's not really a reigning time where Christ is actually here. But there is the thousand years that Christ will be here and they spiritualize it and they say, he's going to come out back after that. The Catholics, they're called amillennial. There is no millennial reign. There is no thousand years. It's just from the last time Christ came to the next time he comes. All that stuff in between, we can understand it. We're just going to leave it alone. Then there are those who say, no, there's going to start a thousand year time of peace and prosperity and then God's going to come back and it's all good, right? Then there's the premillennial view that we believe Christ is going to come back before the thousand year reign of Christ. And it actually says that in scripture. And when it's given in the book of Revelation that he comes back and he reigns for a thousand years, the way that's given is in a narrative form. Uh, I've talked about this and I will uh, again about how to interpret scripture. If it is just in a straightforward way, somebody's telling you what's going on, that's how you're supposed to understand it. You're not supposed to allegorize it. You're not supposed to give some deep meaning to it. He's just telling you what's going on. It's like if I wrote you guys a note, I'm going to get in my vehicle and I'm going home uh, and Patty and I are going to maybe eat something and go to sleep and wake up. And if you said, well, what that really means is... You see what I'm talking about? That's how people interpret scripture. In Calvary Chapel, we take a literal view. If it's in the narrative, that's how we understand it. We don't have to contort to make scripture mean what we want it to mean. We just take it on face value. That's why interpretation is so important. Now with that, I do have one handout here. This gives a comparison of Christian millennial teachings. The first one is post-tribulational premillennial. The second one is pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. And I haven't even talked about dispensationalism. The third one is post-millennialism. And the last one is amillennialism. I'm going to take one and give those to you. So this will help you give it some context about this millennium idea what is going to take place. Now, as that is being passed out, I'll probably touch on this next week a little bit more in depth. There is dispensational or dispensationalism as a way to interpret eschatology. Then there's covenant, um, a covenant view of eschatology. The covenant view is that God deals with humankind with covenants. You have the Adamic covenant, you have the Noahic covenant, you have the Mosaic covenant, uh, you have the covenant of blood, which we are under. Then there's the other way of looking at it dispensationally, that we are under the dispensation of grace as the church. And when the church gets raptured, 
it changes to another dispensation. And I'll give all this information to you next week. I am a dispensationalist. There are pitfalls with dispensationalism. And one of the key things to be a dispensationalist is you take a literal view of Scripture. That's how you interpret Scripture. The second one is God has separate plans for Israel and the church. If you are a covenant theologian, or that's the theology you hold to, most of them say, like in Christian Reconstructionism, all the promises given to the nation of Israel transfer to the church. The the problem with that is they don't transfer the curses to the church. They just transfer the blessings to the church. And so I have an issue with that, and I'll expand on that a little more. But I believe God acts in such a way where he deals with us differently. He dealt with uh, the Mosaic Covenant people differently than he deals with us. And he will deal with the people on earth during the millennial reign differently than he deals with us currently. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And God is going to deal with us differently, all of us who are up there, at that time. And so these are just called different economies or different dispensations. Once we get up there, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the thing that happens before the new heaven and the new earth is a great white throne judgment. And the thing that happens before the great white throne judgment is the earth and the universe is destroyed. I believe that takes place right before the great white throne judgment. And you might say, well, where does everybody go? You know, what happens? I think we're going to witness the destruction of our entire universe. And it says it's going to melt with a fervent heat. Let's see if I have that. Well, Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Um, and Second Peter 3.13 says that as well. But I'll give you the uh, other scripture next week that deals with the earth being destroyed with a fervent heat. And I've explained this in the Bible study before. Um, you guys know how a nuclear bomb goes off. At least you have the concept where an atom has the nucleus and then you have the electrons out on the outside. And if you bust open that nucleus, there's tremendous amount of power in there. Uh, so much power that you can get a, a small uh, amount of fissile material is what they call it, about size of a quarter and you can have an atomic bomb with that much material imagine the entire universe going up where all those atoms separate at that time it is a fervent heat and God says it's going to be destroyed this universe is not meant to survive God's going to make a new one and there's not going to be any sea and there's not going to be any sun but everything will be lit because God will light it up And I think we'll be lit up at that point too. But I don't know that there's going to be any shadows of anything that is out there. So there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. As far as the size of the earth, my personal opinion is it's going to be humongous. Bigger than the one we're on. Because the city, the New Jerusalem, and just as a side note, as I was reading through blueletterbible.org, about this particular time, somebody said that when Christ reigns a thousand years here on the earth, that's when the New Jerusalem comes down. It does not come down at that point. It comes down 
when there's a new heaven and a new earth and it's going to come down it's 1500 miles by 1500 miles by 1500 miles and it's either going to be a square a pyramid we don't know exactly what it's going to look like but it's going to come down from heaven 1500 miles if you compared that to the west coast of the united states how big is that what is california 800 miles If it goes all the way up into Canada. So imagine that coming down from heaven. And some people say it lands on the earth. Some people say it rests above the earth. We don't know which one. The gates are never closed. But how big does a planet have to be for that city to rest, which we will live in, on the earth? I mean, it would be up in outer space, 1,500 miles, right? But I don't know that there's not going to be oxygen or if we even need to breathe oxygen. I don't know. But this thing is going to be huge. So how big is the planet, the new earth going to be? Size of Jupiter or something? I have no idea, but it's going to be huge. And you'd think there'd be an ocean with waves, but there's not going to be an ocean. There may be waves on some lakes or something. I don't know. But it's going to be fantastic. And I'll get into the little bit of the explanation of what heaven is going to look like at that point. Okay, I'm done with this particular portion of it. Do you guys have questions? Yes. They do it through reason. They say that that's the time of the great tribulation, the time of God's wrath. Therefore, we are not appointed unto wrath. And that's when we get raptured is when the wrath begins. And they hold that the wrath only comes in the last three and a half years. So no particular scripture? No. Well, not that I'm aware of. Right. You don't have to convince me. <laughs> well, you know, that one and also the U-turn theory. The, I remember a guy was in the church here and he said, no, we're doing the U-turn. I said, well, what are you talking about? What do you do with John chapter 14? You know, I go to wait to prepare a place for you, and I just mentioned this, where I am, you may be also. I said, what do you do with that? And usually if you take somebody's theology and you just kind of shake it up and mess it up like somebody's hair, they get upset. And <laughs> this particular guy, he goes, well, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, we want to use the Scripture. I will change, as I've told you before, my theology on anything if you can prove it in the Scripture. I want to be right for you guys, not to be right for my sake. Uh, so, other questions about that? Yes? You say he's going to come back and destroy the universe. Um, so, some people say the universe just goes to goes infinity. And he knows where that infinity ends, if it ends. <laughs> you know, the whole thing. You know, I keep on uh, doing some investigation. Did, did you guys see the article? On they just discovered so many more galaxies because they've been hidden behind the clouds in the Milky Way. You saw that? So go figure. There are so many galaxies you cannot count them. It's in I bet it's in the trillions. 
And each one of those galaxies, the stars, are in the billions and billions. And how many of the stars have planets around them? I mean, there are so many out there. And I think if there wasn't a fall, God would have us do the Star Trek thing. You know, where we'd go out and we'd discover the universe. But he has some other plan for us. So it's just, it's humongous. I mean, the amount of power that is out there, it's incredible. Other questions, comments? How do, you, how do you go in the rapture? Right, tennis shoes? Yeah, you better have tennis shoes on there. PF flyers, run faster, jump higher. <clears throat> okay, yeah, it, it's simply by salvation. And that, that's why we tell people about this. This is how I got saved, by listening to prophecy. You know, so I'm just fascinated with it, and hopefully uh, it'll excite you guys too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to go through your word and discover or rediscover your truths here. Help us to just burn it into our minds that we will not quickly forget. And help us to be excited about this information, to give it to others so that they too may receive the salvation that you offer. We thank you again in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for coming.